This is Energy Voice Out Loud, where we are leading the global energy conversation. I'm Ed Reed. Welcome to our podcast. I'm joined today by digital journalist Hamish Penman and content editor Andrew Dykes. Chaps, I would like to talk to you about the weather, but frankly, I've been absolutely gripped this week by this whole submarine missing, uh, looking for the Titanic. It is absolutely terrifying. Uh, yes, Ed, I uh, concur entirely. You'd have to drag me kicking and stream, uh, screaming into that tin can, um, and I think it's now reaching the point. As we are recording, where it's starting to look like it's not going to be a particularly happy ending. Yeah, I saw I saw a picture of the of the inside of it, and it uh, I don't know, it just really gave me the uh, yeah, made me feel distinctly unusual. I've heard it described as a Ford Transit van, and you wouldn't want to be stuck in the back of that for any prolonged period of time. So I think were there further warnings needed, you know, do not get in experimental submarines. I think no good can come of it. Basically, is my takeaway from this. But yeah, it's been amazing to watch just the global eyes just pin on this point, you know. It's just non-stop coverage. Planes, new vessels, we had a pipe blade vessel turn up to assist with the search. Uh, 3,000 meter ROVs, which also can't reach it. Yeah, terrifying stuff. And we still managed to put a North Sea angle on things. Yes, always bring in the, the pipe play vessel. That's, uh, that's good for it. Um, but anyway, listen, um, before we before we turn into a, a Titanic uh, Concern Appreciation Society, maybe we should uh, get down to the to, to, to the matter at hand. Andy, bring us up to speed. The Labour Party's been talking uh, a, a good talk this week. Yeah, so facing a bit of a running battle with unions and the North East and uh, sort of people on the left who would rather push the policy a bit further, Keir Starmer has headed to Edinburgh this week to announce his major uh, energy policy drive for an upcoming election campaign. Um, if you're one for symbolism, the uh, the whole trip didn't disappoint. Uh, journalists who turned up at Waverley were supposed to be carried to the event in Leith on a hydrogen bus. The hydrogen bus broke down some way into the journey. A diesel one was drafted in. That one got lost. Apparently was circling Leith for a good uh, couple of minutes before they got back on track. Meanwhile, everyone else got the brand new tram electrified that had just been fitted. I mean, read into that what you will. It was held at the uh, offices of title firm Nova Innovation down in Leith. Um, so Keir Starmer is announcing a national mission on clean energy. That's the sort of policy paper title uh, with the goal of making the UK a superpower in clean energy. The main thrust of it is he would like to see an acceleration in plans for the uh, net zero electricity target to 2030. So that's five years ahead of the current policy, which would see us reach that by 2035. And uh, some some bullets on what else that would bring would be a quadrupling of offshore wind with an ambition of 55 gigawatts by 2030, fast tracking of at least five gigawatts of floating wind, a tripling of solar power to 50 gigawatts, ending the onshore wind ban and more than doubling onshore wind capacity to 35 gigawatts, supporting new nuclear projects at Hinkley and Sizewell, extending the lifetimes of existing nuclear, backing uh, small modular reactors, SMRs, uh, 10 gigawatts of green hydrogen as, as well, which we'll come to in a bit, Ed. But um, to do that, he has promised a suite of policy changes ranging from planning reforms to procurement, long-term finance, R&D, and uh, a strategic plan for skills and supply chains. And I think the main thrust in there is also this idea around a targeted approach to uh, consenting, which uh, is, is great news for the renewable sector. Uh, this would be a framework to monitor the decision times and a designated directorate within government to ensure everyone is kind of aligned on, on planning goals, all of which would, for the consumer, help shave uh, £1,400 a year off household energy bills. 
A couple of other points, uh, creation of a new national wealth fund to invest in growth projects such as battery factories and clean steel. And all of this would also help create half a million jobs, 50,000 of which he promised would be in Scotland. Um, key to that is also the state-backed developer, GB Energy. So he's promised that for, I think, about a year now. This came up last summer, uh, especially when the when power prices were spiking particularly harshly. Um, this would uh, co-invest in leading-edge technologies, and so he, he says it would de-risk and unlock private sector investment. Uh, crucially, also headquartered north of the border, whether that will be the Northeast, Edinburgh, that was not said. Uh, I think people are already vying for it, the as-yet-uncreated state-backed developer, but we'll see where that lands. Uh, for our audience, though, of course, uh, North Sea Oil and Gas was still uh, at the forefront of all the questions uh, Mr. Starmer was asked. They clarified that the proposed ban, which came up a few weeks ago on North Sea licenses, would only affect new exploration. So drilling licenses for existing fields will continue to be issued. Uh, in the meantime, he also affirmed that any licenses granted between now and the next election would be honoured. So that is thought to pretty much guarantee development of Rosebank, uh, approvals for which are thought to be kind of in the next few weeks, really. It's been the next few weeks for a couple of weeks, but uh, we, <laughs> we're keeping an eye on it. Um, and there were reports over the weekend that Equinor has also been given some kind of personal assurances from, from Keir Starmer about the fate of the field should uh, Labour win power at the next election. Um, so... Anis Sarwar was also there, the Scottish Labour leader, and he uh, interestingly kind of fielded a lot of the direct questions on kind of oil and gas, and especially the Northeast. Um, there was a bit of kind of contention as to whether that's because Scottish Labour are buying for a place in this, or whether, you know, maybe Keir wasn't quite as well briefed. Again, read into that what you will. But he, uh, again, made clear that there will be no cliff edge, there'll be no turning off the taps, and he said oil and gas will continue to play a significant role in our energy sector for decades to come. I was just going to say, surely everyone must be happy by this, but uh, it feels like that kind of leads into your uh, your, 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 your self-teed-up reaction. My reacts to my reacts, yeah. Uh, you'd think, but no, I, I think... Uh, there was still a lot of uh, humphing about it. Um, I think everyone truly, everyone did welcome the ambition around the renewables targets, and so make that clear off the top. Um, so Aberdeen uh, and Grampian Chamber of Commerce said that they support the scale and the direction of the ambition in terms of bringing forward those targets and ramping up the rollout of renewables. However, they said it is completely overshadowed by its position oil, on oil and gas, which is, quote, not grounded in the realities of the energy transition and will drive away the very companies they want to partner with to make the UK a superpower. Uh, they said there being a kind of failure to engage with people in the northeast, um, which I, you know, I think maybe is is fair. I don't think he's kind of made much of an appearance since this kind of furore started maybe about a month ago. Totally fair, <laughs> absolutely and, fair. And, uh, and I think there's still this ongoing sense that he needs to kind of come up and answer some tough questions in the area that is going to be most affected by this. Um, Offshore Energies UK again welcomed the the renewable support, but said the kind of policy on ending exploration was too much too soon. Uh, David Whitehouse saying, kind of interesting putting some numbers to it, that the UK has 283 active oil and gas fields, uh, but 180 are expected to shut down by 2030. Basically saying, if we don't replace them with new ones, then production will decline much faster uh, than otherwise. And again, there's the import uh, dependence argument. Uh, Sir Ian Wood also mentioning that uh, in his in his assessment, the uh, strategy would place tens of thousands of jobs in jeopardy. I think to counterbalance that, uh, Alistair spoke with Woodmac uh, a day or two later, um, who saw the thing as as a largely symbolic gesture. So they suggested that basically all the activity on existing licenses would continue and that in terms of the, the big picture, it wouldn't make a huge difference to the resources that the UK has access to. He said pretty much everything 
is already within sanction-ready projects. So you talk about Rosebank, Cambo, a few others that are already in the hopper and already on the way to development should they be granted. They also said, you know, prospective resources out there that have yet to be explored are kind of 1 billion barrels of oil equivalent. Uh, there's about 7 billion in the existing fields. Um, and the last uh, discovery from one of those, so exploration to kind of a commercial, potentially commercial discovery, I think was uh, 2012. There was one in, in 2014 that was just discovered Pensacola a couple of months back, um, but that is still deemed in Woodmax estimation sub-commercial because they, it hasn't been brought forward fully into uh, commercial development yet. So call that 2014 if we're being generous. So if, so if it, it feels like uh, projects kind of in flight are kind of going to going to continue, but essentially exploration is dead. That would be a correct assessment, I think. Yeah, um, but e- exploration in the sense of the very frontier stuff, right? I think people think of exploration as these big fields, right? These the Rosebank and the Cambos, but the sort of the designation within the industry is that they're already approaching the point at which you can start to make them happen. And I think that there's a bit of messaging potentially from the industry that needs to be got through as to what, what the difference between exploration and going out and exploring these really, you know, frontier regions versus bringing online new production that we're kind of already aware of. Throwing in the Aberdeen point of view, I think it's pretty telling that Keir Starmer chose not to uh, come up to the northeast to announce this and to instead go to Edinburgh. And I know that's a point that's particularly been stuck in people's craw up here, um, especially that he has not even paid a visit to the uh, to the northeast yet. I mean, I was kind of chatting to a, a union contact on it was Monday or Tuesday or something after it was announced. He was um, he was asking what we made of it and I put the question back to him and he said it's been pretty, it was pretty coldly received and this is, just seems to be this thinking that the UK's energy industry exists in kind of designated silos, that, that there doesn't seem to be this appreciation that there is the interdependency across it. Um, which I think is a real kind of a real issue, um, especially as companies continue to diversify and have foot uh, or have feet, sorry, in a in a whole range of camps. Fantastic. Well, I think that's uh, a slight, slight, maybe a slightly downbeat note to end on, but I think it's it, it probably sort of underscores uh, some of the challenges that, uh, that that we're looking at, and I think it's it's all kind of feeding into that kind of electoral maths, isn't it? That uh, I suppose is being sort of calculated for uh, for next year with. You know quite how that's going to shake out. We will we will keep an eye on it. But for now, we're going to take a short break. In a world where the scarcity of key resources is starting to be felt and the impact of climate change is all too apparent, sustainable growth is no longer a choice, it is a necessity. Sustainable Growth Voice is a new online publication championing individuals and organisations that are pushing sustainable growth forward, making a positive impact on the environment, society and the economy. From innovative technologies solving sustainability challenges to social enterprises promoting inclusive growth and transformative policy initiatives, SG Voice covers the fundamental drivers at the heart of the new sustainable economy. Join the conversation that the world needs now. Visit SG Voice for knowledge, inspiration and insight from across the sustainable growth landscape. So, uh, leading on from that uh, that 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 discussion of, uh, of of politics, I was at a, a conference about hydrogen uh, last week. Sadly, uh, before the whole uh, hydrogen bus snafu in Edinburgh, which I think would have uh, would have provided an interesting talking point, um, because it, you know, so the uh, the the, the Labour shadow uh, business and industrial strategy. Uh, Bill Esterson, I think, uh, turned up, um, and 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 essentially, you know, sort of put a a, a very resounding uh, seal of approval on hydrogen. 
you know, he was uh, he was sort of asked questions about whether there was going to be a role for hydrogen and heating. He felt that it was, you know, and that kind of followed uh, Grant Shapps's rather uh, negative feelings for hydrogen, which had come out the sort of the same day. He talked about uh, hydrogen for transport. Um, so yeah, he was he was he was really uh, really sort of flying the flag for hydrogen, as a lot of people were. Obviously, at a conference about hydrogen. It was largely full of, uh, full of full of people cheering on the sector's development. But I think the thing that struck me um, was that there was no feeling that progress had been made. I mean, it, it, there was a lot of talk, a lot of, you know, plans sort of set out, a lot of people saying, oh, hydrogen can do all of these things. Uh, it, we can use it for heating our homes. We can use it for driving. We can use it for sustainable aviation fuel. We can use it for uh, direct consumption, ammonia, those sorts of things. But there was also the feeling that nothing had changed in the last 12 months. And I felt, you know, really that, that, that those same conversations had probably been happening uh, the, the, the previous year. Um, and I think it was quite striking that uh, a guy from, from Hynet uh, kind of came along and, and asked some very pointed questions to, um, to, 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 the, uh, to, the, to the conference and, in fact, to uh, a, a government minister, Anne-Marie Trevelyan saying essentially that the government's inaction to provide uh, sort of support for the hydrogen sector that the, the government essentially planning to really only provide the certainty required by the end of 2025 essentially meant that projects such as Hynet risked stalling um, and so he was he, he asked a very very pointed question saying essentially if this project doesn't make any progress uh, in the next you know two and a half years what happens then uh, obviously you know perhaps perhaps raising the risk that um, that that Hynet doesn't doesn't move forwards so uh, I mean uh, the, 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 there wasn't there wasn't a resounding answer and Marie Trevelyan doesn't really have the hydrogen brief so it was a slightly awkward uh, you know uh, ministerial choice to kind of come and fly the flag for hydrogen all she could say was essentially I'll ask Grant Shapps I'll ask Grant Shapps. I'll ask Grant Shapps, um, which I, I suppose was fair. Uh, obviously, she's uh, SCDO, so that was well, hydrogen. Obviously, not in her brief. Although she did mention that she had a, a hydrogen-ready boiler in her uh, in her house, so she's uh, single-handedly trying to fly that flag. But uh, essentially, uh, there was there was a real feeling that uh, you know that the that, that the government wasn't quite sort of stepping up to the plate in perhaps the way that they could. Um, and obviously, you know, the Labour Party with Bill Esterson sort of, you know, trying to obviously put a put a much more positive spin on it and, and essentially saying that, um, I mean, so he, he, he drew a comparison. I don't know if you guys have seen The West Wing, but um, there's there's a point in The West Wing when people, uh, and he, 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 Bill Esterson re referenced this directly, the sort of presidential aspirants go to, I think it's Iowa. And they ought to sort of step up and say, you know, I believe that the ethanol is is the sort of the, one of the the keys to uh, the U.S.'s uh, sort of energy needs. Uh, and he essentially sort of emulated that for hydrogen, uh, which I thought was uh, was 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 a good move, uh, or at least a big move. Uh, quite whether uh, whether it's whether it's sensible or not, obviously. As we've seen with the with the hydrogen bus, uh, there are clearly challenges in terms of uh, in terms of sort of executing that. But it it was it was a it was a really interesting way to to shed a light on, on some of those those challenges that we saw in the sector, but also really kind of raise some big concerns about about you know quite how to deliver on the aspiration. It's a it's a weird one. I mean, I'm, I'm straying into personal. <laughs> hobby horse territory but i feel like hydrogen is both you know at the moment we have this policy that's going to be critical to 
uh, reaching net zero, which and I think it will be in specific sectors. But the moment we kind of don't have a finalized market framework, like you said, the government seems to be kind of dragging its feet on something that it also says is integral. We have a target, but we don't really have a pathway to get there. But on the other hand, I feel like there's still so much hype and like silver bullet thinking around hydrogen in that, you know, I, I'm not still not convinced that hydrogen boilers are going to be it if we're going to be in a world of kind of heat pumps and, and electric heating in a, in a way that makes a lot more sense. You know, we have a gas grid, I get that. But hydrogen is really difficult to handle. It's, there's embrittlement, there's all these problems you get. There's the fact that people still, no matter, you know, how educated they are, think about uh, Hindenburgs and <laughs> massive explosions when it comes to putting hydrogen in their homes, right? I think there's, there's, there's our fair concerns. I mean, I think just to, I mean, obviously, and these were kind of discussed somewhat. I mean, I think, you know, there was, there was discussion around, I suppose... Um, given the uh, frankly parlous state of the the nation's housing stock, given our, our our lack of insulation, I think there's obviously kind of a question there around around the use of heat pumps, right? Which obviously require insulation, they require bigger radiators, they require you know heat pumps, which and 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 that all costs money, right? Um, and there is that existing asset of the of the, of the gas grid quite how that needs to be adapted to uh, to, to to be allowed to carry hydrogen is obviously kind of one of those questions that is kind of uh, very much up in the air and I think you know there, there, there was discussion you know with those kind of test projects um, I think Cadent was involved in one when they were they've sort of been 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 shifting over a couple of villages to to run on hydrogen and I think there have been real problems where it's like how do you how do you how do you have this conversation with people how do you say look hydrogen is safe it can do what you it can essentially sort of slot in to allow you to to have a similar sort of heating experience uh for want of a terrible phrase um as 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 it does with with, with your boiler which i think you know kind of people kind of understand so it's i don't know it it, it feels uh like a really tricky point but obviously one a decision that we have to take right i mean i think you know clearly 2030 is kind of looking pretty close. 2050 is not that far away. I feel like some sort of a decision has got to be taken and it feels like uh, a lack of progress. Hamish, what do you reckon? And on that safety point, I mean, natural gas in itself is incredibly flammable and very explosive. So, I mean, it's not like we're moving from one completely safe fuel to uh, to one that's erratic and and is uh, and is life threatening. So, I think there is a conversation that needs to be had there. There have been um, trials of just feeding kind of small quantities of hydrogen into the gas grid and it operates much as it would as if you were using 100% natural gas. So I think there's certainly something to be explored. I mean, obviously there is, there's plenty of people doing it and they don't need to tell them that. Um, but I, I mean, it, you were kind of saying about heat pumps and things, Andy, but I, I mean, the, the kind of dangers of electrifying everything when it comes to power outages and 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 things like that i mean it's i think there's going to have to be a a pretty rounded look and it's not going to be a a one-size-fits-all solution it's definitely going to be different different courses for different horses um and it's it's lucky that we've got a couple of commentators in the supplement that feel very much this way (laughs) (laughs) i mean i think that that is definitely the key right is that it's a great solution for a, a couple of really difficult areas especially all these you know, I think clustered uh, hydrogen developments, I think probably are the way to go when you've got these big industrial clusters with big power demands and you can kind of centralize that and look after all in these these little areas. It's just, yeah, whether we're all going to be filling up hydrogen cars and hydrogen buses, not on the way to Leith, obviously. <laughs> Leith is a bit of a black spot for hydrogen, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> it seems that way. And, you know, flying in our hydrogen uh, powered planes. I'm, I'm just not sure. I think there's still a lot of this this hype and this like, yeah, 
it's this, it's the silver bullet technology that has kind of proven not to necessarily be the case. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it, it very much feels like a sort of an imperfect solution to a range of problems. But I think obviously, given the the, the sort of the scale of the challenge in front of us, it's it's obviously one that that it feels like it's going to have to play a part. I mean, I think just just to finish on a, on a, on a quick anecdote, like one of the panelists uh, was talking at, at one point about. Um, he he was he was discussing it was uh, um, uh, he was in talks with a with a with a guy who was doing some I think it was an offshore wind, and he was talking about the challenges of of, of hooking up his offshore wind project to the grid and obviously the the kind of the backlog, the next available spots on the grid being I don't know what was it something like ten years out something like that, and he was essentially saying this this project developer was that turning this electricity into hydrogen solves that problem right quite what you do with that hydrogen obviously still a, a question to be answered but it's uh it's, it's one to think about but possibly not one for um this uh the, the this immediate term we are going to go into a into a quick break and then we'll come back with some discussion of parkmead in this third episode of series two of gigawaters brought to you by sustainable growth voice and energy voice out loud in paid partnership with ersted we're going to be looking at innovation, new technologies such as floating wind and their role in the economic transformation currently taking place. This is really important as a driver of economic growth at a national, regional and local level. For this episode, I'm joined by co-host Emma Toulson, Lead Stakeholder Advisor at Ursa, and our special guest Claire Canning, Program Manager for the Offshore Wind Growth Partnership, part of the Global Offshore Wind Catapult. We're going to be looking at innovation in economic transformation and how this can affect skills, supply chain and infrastructure in ways that highlight the benefits of the energy and net zero transition. This podcast is available now. So Hamish, bring us up to speed with Parkmead. Have things been going their way? I suspect they have not. Uh, no. No, to put, it, to, to, to put it brilliantly. And, uh, no, it's going to be quite a long segment because I'm going to start with a, a little gripe with a few bones to pick and get a rant out of the way early. Uh, so Parkmead, the headline is, has abandoned the development of the uh, the Greater Perth area in the North Sea. Now, I got a tip that this might have happened, um, that they'd chosen not to renew the licenses that cover the area. Um, I think they expired at the, at the start of June, but I got a, a little, little tip off on Monday morning. Um, and after some trawling through the NSTA website, was kind of 99% certain that that indeed was the uh, case. So I went to knock in at Parkmead, um, who first of all didn't get back to me for quite a few hours, and in the intervening time issued an update to the London Stock Exchange, giving answers to everything that I had asked them. Um, and I think it was uh, Sherlock Holmes once said that coincident on coincidence that the universe is rarely so lazy, so just, just let it be known that the game was afoot and that we were ahead of it. <laughs> You finally found your Moriarty. Yes, exactly. Um, so now uh, you've got that self-indulgent torrent out of the way. Um, yeah, big news from the North Sea. Uh, Parkmead has given up on Perth and taken a £33 million hit in the process. So the wider area holds about 55 million barrels of recoverable oil equivalent. Uh, the wider project had the potential to deliver between 75 and 130 million barrels with further volumes through life extension. So that makes it one of the biggest untapped resources in the UK. Um, part of me's reasons for dropping the project are, as you'd expect if you've been watching the North Sea um, for the last year and a bit, numeral fiscal changes, lack of public and political support for new oil projects, and also, interestingly, concerns over the longevity of nearby infrastructure. Now, there were talks about using CNOC's Scott platform as a host for the project, um, 
I did see some suggestions from commentators that perhaps Parkmead's decision to abandon uh, Perth wasn't all that surprising. It seems like the development is one of those that would kind of only be a goer if everything was was going in its favour. So the, there were technical challenges around it, high capex costs, um, and one person suggested that it would have been pretty marginal even if the oil price was um, in the heavens, as it were. Um, despite that, this is still a big disappointment for Parkmead. Investors certainly thought so. The shares on Monday uh, closed at 15p, so down um, just shy of 19%, and they've kind of been on a slower but noticeable downward trajectory after that. Um, they've stabilized in the last couple of days. Um, but yeah, for Parkmead, they've spent years and years progressing Perth and trying to find a way in which it can be produced economically. So for them, this is a big blow, um, a lot of work that's that's now come to nothing, basically. So now the company has said it's going to turn its attention to attractive projects, quote-unquote, like um, Skerryvore, which is also in the North Sea, which it says is uh, simpler and lower cost than Perth. Uh, drilling at that prospect is expected late next year. About 157 million barrels of oil equivalent targeted um, and a number of kind of low-cost tieback options. So that perhaps seems like it's going to be more feasible than the, than the big development at Perth. Their firm also said it was keeping an open mind on future acquisitions. The board is currently evaluating several opportunities. And Tom Cross, who is Parkmead's chairman, um, a pretty big name in the North Sea. He founded Dana Petroleum before selling it to the Koreans um, about 10, 15 years ago also flagged opportunities in the licensing round that Parkmead has bid in, um, results of which we're expecting in Q3. So there is plenty to be getting on with, but Perth was the company's headline act in many ways. Um, and you do hope that nobody at the company is going to face the chop as a result of this, because we have seen it elsewhere in recent weeks, notably at Apache. I mean, a couple of interesting things there, but maybe just to, to pick up on that Scaryville. I think, was it Scaryville, which is what they're planning on drilling next year? I mean, it feels like that might be, obviously, potentially in a new under a new government, um, which feels like it might tie quite neatly in with, with what Andy was saying uh, just now about about Labour. But it, it feels like they feel sufficiently confident to go ahead with it, despite potential changes um in, in in government it seems so based on they're saying q4 2024 drilling which would be pretty much the exact same time that we theoretically could be gearing up for for heading to the ballot boxes so i mean a lot could change in that point um i mean a lot could change even they said they've bid for licenses but as we've seen with the carbon capture storage licenses, those that have bid perhaps uh, and maybe will not be progressing theirs forwards given the changes that was kind of a, we don't know if that's the case, but that's some speculation. So there's still a long way to go on that. It is a kind of exciting prospect, but it's one that part Mead have been saying since 2015, I think, that they were looking to drill. So it's it's not been, it, I mean, it's been a slow burner. It's it's, it's not progressed, um, progressed quickly. And, and part Mead did recently up at stake um, in the prospect as well from from 30% to 50%. So I mean, that's a, perhaps a good vote of confidence. It's also got Serica and Cal Energy in there. Um, but we'll wait and see. Like, like, like we've seen in the last year, a, a hell of a lot can change in 12 months. So I don't think many people will be holding them to it if it gets to Q4 2024 and there aren't drill bits in the ground yet. I am interested as well by the, the uh, sort of current climate politically and, and with the windfall tax and things as to what cover it gives for a lot of people walking away from these projects projects that have perhaps turned out to be too difficult you know i think that's as much a 
a driving force behind this. As you say, it's been in development for for God knows how long. Walking away might actually be a, a rational response to that project as much as it is a response to the kind of current conditions. And I think we've seen that with a couple of different projects this year with kind of maybe backing off um, because it's, it's a good reason to get out now when you can kind of blame these headline conditions rather than that you couldn't make it happen. Yeah, I mean, it's a useful uh, thing to blame for, for perhaps things that companies have been wanting to do for quite a long time. Um, if, I mean, but if, if these projects, I mean, quite often you see perhaps licenses are returned and others will pick them up and, and try and progress them, especially those that are returned by majors and, and you see other smaller kind of nimbler private equity-backed companies coming in for them. But if these projects aren't able to progress when there's a sizable investment allowance in the windfall tax, one that presumably um, going on the noises that are coming from Labour, they would close should they uh, should they win the next election, then you have to think that they're probably never going to progress um, unless there is huge technological developments that really brings down the cost of extraction. So it will be will be. Uh, I mean, we'll keep an eye on the licensing on uh, the relinquishment reports because they do take a while to process. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. Just I mean, on part meets on their their exploration ambitions as well. We did run a piece looking at. All of the companies that are part of publicly announced that they are bidding in the 33rd exploration licensing round, like I said, the results of that uh, looking like Q3, so not too far off. Um, it was kind of, I did up the listicle, it was quite telling that a lot of them are, are these smaller, nimbler companies like, like Deltic, who have obviously grabbed a lot of the headlines in the last year. Um, but it will remain to be seen whether how keen they are to progress with any exploration licenses given the the chances of a change of government and given the even if these licenses aren't revoked are they really going to want to bother with perhaps quite small marginal returns given the opposition that they'll face um politically it, it just seems like a lot might say you know what we'll we'll go elsewhere and we have seen it already with some of the bigger players trying to diversify their portfolios and and heading to to fairer shores I mean, I suppose, I suppose the sort of uh, the, the kind of big corollary is is, is sort of oil prices, isn't it? And uh, I mean, obviously, uh, it feels like OPEC's recent actions trying to sort of defend oil prices uh, have pretty much come to naught. And and obviously, weak Chinese demand is kind of you know dragging that uh, dragging that price down. But you know, a couple of years out, things may look a bit different, right? With uh, if 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 Chinese demand comes back, if um, you know, there's, there's there is this sort of shortage of uh, investment in new fields, which people have obviously been talking about for some time. At which point, you know, I suppose we we there might be uh, opportunities again, right? And I suppose that's that's possibly why you kind of take that kind of slightly uh, kind of gambling chance with a with on a on a new license on the on the on the on the uh, future opportunity of of sort of. Over a hundred dollar, you know, dollar oil would uh, presumably be a bit of a bit of bit of a game changer. Yeah, and you can only think that they will reach a point where the oil price will probably only head in one direction, um, potentially because supplies will be squeezed to such a point that um, the demand for what oil there is being produced will be will be very very high. But I mean, I think we're quite a long way off that point yet. So I, I wouldn't. I don't think these companies will be betting on a hundred dollar oil. That would be a fairly shaky business case. Um, I think that'd be a difficult one to put to to investors and banks. Um, I, so. So I mean, if they they're factoring in maybe forty, sixty dollar oil, then perhaps these these still will be able to progress. But I think it's likely going to be the political sentiment that's going to be the big stumbling block in the next 
the next 10 years and public sentiment as well rather than than oil prices i mean the oil price is healthy enough now it was pretty it was decent very decent about this time last year and yet there wasn't a flurry of, of projects being signed off so so i think i think companies are increasingly cognizant of of other factors yeah, I mean, possibly. I mean, I, I just feel, I mean, I, I get the impression, I mean, as I say, right, OPEC kind of, you know, Saudi Arabia unilaterally cutting a, a million barrels per day suggests that someone's not happy with the oil price. Um, I mean, you know, Shell's kind of cutting CapEx. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's it's obviously kind of a, 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 a big topic to, uh, to, to, to take on. But uh, I think obviously, who knows where the oil price is going? You know, where is peak demand? That sort of thing. It's obviously some big questions. But, but obviously, these companies are having to think about it, right? When you're making those investments that are going to have, say, five, ten years out, uh, you know what what you know prices are going to be. That's going to play a role. But listen, I think we've we've probably run out of time uh, for today. We've taken on some big issues. We've taken on the you know the future of hydrogen. Uh, we've taken on oil prices. We've taken on uh, electoral uh, calculations. Um, so I, I feel we've probably covered enough ground for uh, for, for, for one episode of, uh, of Energy Voice Out Loud. So uh, thanks, uh, thanks Hamish, thanks Andy. Uh, I've been Ed Reed. Thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.